Our scripture passage this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. It can be found in your pew Bibles on page 1,821. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. As a prisoner for the Lord, this is Paul speaking to the church in Ephesus. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Let's pray. Father, give us Wisdom, knowledge, discernment, give us your spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we come before your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Over the last five sermons, I've been doing a series on biblical manhood and womanhood. We went back to the garden, we talked about the way Adam was created and what that means. We talked about the way Eve was created and what that means. And we said they are created differently to serve different roles, but they have equality. So they have different roles, but they have equality. And then we looked at that, at what that looks like in the Old Testament, what that looks like in the New Testament, what that looks like for women in the home and in the broader culture and in the church, and we looked at what it looks like for men in the home, the broader culture in the church, and we tried to summarize, we tried to give you a picture, biblically, theologically, of what this is, this complementary, this complementarianism that we believe the scriptures teach. And I had in mind to have my last sermon basically be a hodgepodge full of a Objections that people make to the complementarian position or the biblical position. What about Deborah in the Old Testament? What about Galatians 3? It says there's neither male nor female. What about Phoebe at the end of the book of Romans? Those are just some examples for you. But as I considered that 
this morning was the Lord's Supper service, I began to realize that maybe a better way to bring this sermon series on biblical manhood and womanhood to a close would, do, would be to emphasize the fact that we are one in Christ, that we as the body have unity, and that complementarianism as it has been displayed and described in the last few sermons is not a threat to that, but is actually fulfilling that reality. And then if anybody actually has objections or questions or has had any thoughts concerning the last few sermon series, you're welcome to speak to me after the service or any other time, and I'd be free to give you some resources that you could read to hear those answers. So with that being said, I chose to look at Ephesians 4 to describe that both male and female, maleness and femaleness, men and women in the church make up what Paul is describing here. And Ephesians 4 is this beautiful, wonderful picture of the body of Christ. And this is not the only place he uses that analogy. He uses it in other portions of his writings as well, particularly in Corinthians. With that being said, I want us to think about something. I want us to think about a reality that we experience here in this fallen world, and it's something called an autoimmune disease. I don't know if any of you know what an autoimmune disease is, But it's a condition in which your immune system mistakenly attacks your own body. Typically, the immune system guards against germs like bacteria and viruses. And when it senses these foreign invaders, it sends an army of fighter cells to attack them. But when the immune system malfunctions, it doesn't function properly, what you have is your antibodies attacking non-bacteria virus cells, but actually attacking healthy cells in your body. I believe that many of the things that are going on in our culture and in our society today, many of the things of which the teaching of Scripture is being twisted and converted, shifted and changed, to make room for the way things are changing in our day and age. I say those are autoimmune diseases. I'd say when we separate too sharply male and female and we only focus upon the way that we are different and the roles in which we are called to, we threaten to become autoimmune diseases in the body, biting each other, fighting each other, infighting. And that's why I want to talk about the unity that we have in Christ. Our theme this morning, Christ unites us together by His Spirit and gives us gifts of His grace that together we may grow up into His likeness. The three important key words of that theme are unity or unites, gifts, and grow up. Point number one is the unity that we are called to. And that covers verses 1 through 6 of Ephesians chapter 4. Point number 2 are the gifts that we are given. That covers verses 7 through 13 of our passage this morning. And the last point is the growing up of the body. And that covers verses 14 through 16 
of our text. So let's begin by looking at the unity that we are called to. Verses 1 through 6, Paul says, I am in prison. I'm in prison for the Lord. And even when he's in prison, he is considering the churches that he has planted all across the known world. He's considering the, the believers in Ephesus, and he wants to give them a calling. If you consider, if you think of the letter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, Jew and Gentile, no, you've got it wrong. Christ has taken down the dividing wall, and we are together the body of Christ. Chapter 3, Paul describes for us the beautiful wonder of the mystery of the gospel and how we have now in this time become partakers of the mystery. And we know the mystery that Christ came, died, was resurrected three days later, uh, and then rose from the grave and then ascended to his Father in heaven. And here now he, he wants to emphasize this unity. And he says this, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And Paul says, how do you do that? How do we do that? How do we live a life worthy of the calling we have received? He describes for us, verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Paul understands that when people get together, there are sinners. Paul understands that when the body of Christ comes together in fellowship that we still sin, we still struggle against the flesh, so he calls us to these spiritual qualities. He calls us to something that resembles the fruit of the Spirit, if it sounds familiar to you. And then he says, knowing that there will be sinfulness, that there will be fighting, possibly that, that we won't always get along, verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And to emphasize that unity, Paul goes through this list of ones, right? There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all is over all, through all, and in all. What Paul is describing here is something that I would call an already but not yet reality when it comes to the unity of the body of Christ. When he says there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all, he's saying this unity which I am calling to you, you need to understand, is already a reality. It's a blood-bought reality. The unity that's already a reality is what we speak of when we confess the Apostles' Creed and we say... We believe in a Catholic church, communion of saints, the fellowship of the believers, right? It's something that cannot be broken. It's something that cannot be changed, shifted, distorted, because Christ bought it with his blood. And you might hear that and say, but, but Carrie... What about, what about the churches that split? What about the different denominations? What about all this infighting that we see in the Christian community? What do you mean? It's a blood-bought reality. Well, that's the not yet, isn't it? That's the fighting of the flesh and the spirit that goes on. That's the failures of broken, sinful humans 
the cause, fights and arguments in the church. And Paul's calling to the church in Ephesus and Paul's calling to us is that if we would fix our eyes on Christ, if we would continue to grow as we gaze upon that already reality, that already Christ has bought with his blood the unity of the body of Christ and that we would see that we can grow in humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, if that we would keep every effort to keep the body the unity of the Spirit to the bond of peace. We would see that infighting. We would see that splitting and that breaking and that splintering stop. Because that splitting, that breaking, that splintering isn't actually dividing the body of Christ, but it's saying something about the body of Christ that's not true. And I might add one more one to Christ's list. One spirit, one body, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one supper. One supper. What place is it not so clear to us than at the table of our Lord where all, young and old, men and women, Methodist, Baptist, Reformed, come to the same table and receive His grace in the bread and the cup. We all come to receive His grace and by faith eat of the same body and blood of Christ, our Savior. That is a wonderful, beautiful picture of the unity. The unity is based on the union believers have with Christ. The unity of the body of Christ here includes both men and women. Paul will go on to speak of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, young people, old people, Sunday school teachers, coffee and cookie makers. This unity includes all who have true faith in Christ, all who have been bought and purchased by His blood. So it's based on the union that we have with Christ. Consider what the Heidelberg Catechism says. It says we are not our own, right? That means we belong to Christ. And because we belong to Christ, we have union with Him. We have fellowship with Him. And then also the unity that we are called to is a unity that's meant to reflect the Godhead or the triune nature of God. Look at the ones that Paul lists. He says there's one Spirit, one Lord, and one God and Father of all. So, as the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are one, the many parts of the body of Christ are one. It's not a perfect analogy, but it is one that is drawn for us. And then lastly, the unity that we are called to, or, and then, oh, that's, I looked at the, long, the wrong list. So we're going on to the next point. So that's the, the unity that we're called to. The second is the gifts that we are given. So as Paul has described this unity that we are called to, that we are to strive to keep the spirit of uh, the bond of peace, right? He says this in verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. 
What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So maybe the Ephesian believers could have been reading Ephesians chapter 4 and said, how are we to grow in humility, to grow in, in not thinking of ourselves but thinking of others? How are we to be patient and bear with one another in love? How are we supposed to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? And Paul says, Christ has not left you powerless to accomplish this. Christ has not left you powerless to strive after the already, even though you have the not yet, right? Christ, in His grace, has given His body, the church, spiritual gifts and special offices. That with these gifts we might embody the attitude and unity which has already been purchased and accomplished by His death, burial, and resurrection. In verses 7 through 10, Paul tells us that Christ has a portion grace to each one of us. He quotes Psalm 68. If you've ever read Psalm 68, it's this beautiful psalm about the glorious God who is king, who has come back victorious after defeating with his army the enemies of God's people. And he ascends into the mountain of the Lord. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul reveals to us that the Lord King who returned victorious over his enemies and ascended the mountain of the Lord to sit upon his throne is actually Christ who ascended to sit at the right hand of his Father. Christ is the one who descended to live amongst us as a man in humiliation. That's his humiliation that we speak of. Christ is the one who ascended in victory over death and sin in his glorification. And when he ascended, Paul tells us he gave gifts to his people. These gifts, Paul describes for us, first are the special offices of the church. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. This is in part what we spoke of two weeks ago when I addressed the issue of men's roles in the church. And when it comes to the offices of the apostles and prophets, Paul's already laid the foundation for us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, what their function was. Paul says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So the apostles, the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, were for a time, a season, to build the foundation. The prophets, at the same time, think in the New Testament, the book of Acts, Agabus, and think uh, the, uh, the daughters of Philip, who were prophets, think of those things. They were there to lay the foundation for the church, for the building of God's people. The apostles and prophets in the first century function as builders of this foundation. Therefore, we, we would say that these offices no longer exist. But the office of evangelist is a bit more complicated, and I don't want to spend too much time on it because that's not the purpose of this message, but Philip... The deacon is called an evangelist in the book of Acts. Also, Paul instructs Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse 5, to do the work of an evangelist as he pastors the church in Ephesus. 
By that we can tell that the offices, though still active today, that are spoken of here in verse 11, are the pastors and the teachers. But I want you to look closely at the function of the pastors and teachers here. As is so often the case, what happens in the church is that we want the pastors and the teachers to be the professional Christians for us. We want them to do what Christ has called each and every one of us to do. Now, I understand there are differences. I'm uh, called to, to preach and to administer the sacraments, and we understand those distinctions. But, but a lot of times, churches call and hire a pastor because they want the pastor to do the work of a Christian for them. But here we see that the pastors and the teachers are called to equip Christ's people for the works of service, right? And I like the way that the ESV translates this. I think it's a little bit more uh, clear to us. It says, the pastors and the teachers are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Wait, I thought that was the minister's job. No, the pastors and the teachers are to, in their office, through the preaching of the word and through the administration of the sacraments, through counseling and through encouragement, called to have you, each and every one of you, as living members of the body of Christ, to do the work of ministry. And you see in this, don't you, the, the beautiful complementary of the church. Yes, some are called to special offices, but these offices are to do the work of equipping each member, men and women, with their own unique spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ as they encourage one another, as they pray for each other, as they gather and study God's Word. We're all called, we're all redeemed to be living members of the body of Jesus Christ. Each one of us has a role in building up the body. The purpose of these Gifts of grace poured out on us by our faithful Savior is that we might use them to reach the unity of the faith, to grow in our knowledge of the Son of God, becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What's important to see here is that Paul makes a very clear point. He says, this is not something one can do by themselves. You will not find a mature Christian who is not a living member of a local church. Because Christ has knit us together and He has, in His sovereign will, placed each and every one of us who are here this morning uniquely in this congregation. And in this church, that we may function as the body, loving one another, building one another up, encouraging one another, calling one another back to our first love, praying for one another. What we're being told here is that we need each other. We can't be an autoimmune disease fighting each other, attacking each other. 
Because this is the body of Christ. We need each other. Men and women, we need each other in this church. We need each and every one of us, each and every part. That's what we don't understand. That's what we confuse sometimes. Because as you sit there in the pews and you look up at me sitting here in the pulpit, you think, that's the important job. That's the special job. But we all, we all serve an essential and important role in the body of Christ and in the church. People of God, brothers and sisters, I need you. I need you. My wife needs you. My children need you. Just as much as you need us. To the final point, we've looked at the unity that we're called to, the gifts that we are given, and now we look at the growing up of the body. Verse 14 through 16. Now, if we do this, if we, if we function, the pastors and teachers pre- preparing God's people for the works of ministry, that they may build one another up until the, we reach the unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, this will happen. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, Blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. If we do that, if we have the the beauty of complementary roles functioning properly in the body of Christ, each and every one of us functioning in our roles, the offices of elders and teachers being filled by called men, the men and women of the congregation being equipped in their maleness and femaleness. Yes, even in in, in the way that God created them to do the work of ministry for one another and those even yet to come into the fold of God, then Paul tells us that we'll grow up as the body of Christ. The not yet of this blood-bought unity will shrink and the already will grow more clearer. That we will be anchored in the teaching of Christ and impervious to the deceitful, scheming, cunning, and craftiness of our society. People of God, there's a lot of deceitful, scheming, cunning, and craftiness going on these days. That we will stand firm in the truth of God against the waves of our changing culture. That as our culture moves further and further away from God, we will stand upon the word of God and say, I know we may look different. I know we may look strange. I know we may look traditional and old-fashioned. But we believe this is what God's word has taught us and revealed to us. And we hold to that. And we believe it's beautiful and wonderful. And it's the way God has created us. Because we are the body of Christ.
We will stand firm against the ways of our unchanging culture, not only when it comes to the views on manhood and womanhood or sexuality or gender identity, but also to the lies about Christ, his person and his work, to the trustworthiness and sufficiency of the scriptures. Can you really believe the Bible? And so many more things. This unity that we're called to and the gifts that we've been given, if used, will result and the maturity of the body of Christ. That we would be laser focused upon the mission of Christ and the mission of God and would not be distracted, bogged down, weakened by falsehoods and controversies and infighting. But speaking the truth in love, we might grow up in Christ who is the head. This is what all these sermons in this series have been working up to. This is what I've been describing, the unity of the body of Christ. That the whole body, not just parts, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, will grow and build itself up in love as each part does its work. And what better expression do we have of that blood-bought unity and the table of our Lord. This is why I wanted to end the sermon series on biblical manhood and womanhood by emphasizing our unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. That each of us is needed, essential, important. That each part of the body, male and female, is part of it because Christ has died to make you a part of it. He's brought us all together that we might have union with Him. None of us is our own, but belong in life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The unity that Paul describes for us here in Ephesians chapter 4 and even elsewhere in the scriptures is not threatened by biblical manhood and womanhood. It is accomplished by it. So as we come to the table, as we join together and rightly discern the body, May we partake of the means of grace presented to us here that we might grow all the more closer to having the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace even as we already have it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words. We ask that you would give us your grace now as we turn to come to your table. That the words that you have inspired here in your text and your revelation would be a calling to us to live a life worthy of the calling you've given us. That by your grace and through the Spirit which dwells each and every one of us, we might grow up in Christ. We might not fight and devour one another, but love one another, build one another up, encourage one another. As you have knit us together in the blood of your Son. Father, we're family here. You've made us family. May you bind us together in love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.